Hey fam, Patrick here. I am so, so excited to announce that today is the day we release the brand new Obsessed Network podcast, Unjust and Unsolved with Maggie Freeling. Episodes one and two are available right now. So when you're done listening to this episode, go find Unjust and Unsolved wherever you get your podcasts to get episode two instantly. Unjust and Unsolved is a podcast about wrongful convictions. We've been working on this podcast for over 18 months, and I could not be more proud of the results. And before we get to the episode, I just wanted to let you know that episode one, which you're listening to right now, was completely finished and ready to go. And then there was major, major news in the case, and we had to redo the entire thing. So make sure you stay tuned to the very end to find out what happened. You can find Unjust and Unsolved wherever you get your podcasts. As I mentioned, episode two is available right now wherever you listen, so I hope you'll go and subscribe. Okay, now to the episode. My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Ronnie Wallace Long. And I'm going to mention right off the bat that as I reported this episode, there were some major developments that we'll get to later. But first, there's a new push to release a black man who says he's been wrongly imprisoned for more than 40 years for the rape of a white woman in North Carolina. In 1976, a man broke into the home of a prominent white widow and violently beat and raped her. Ronnie Long, a young black man, was given consecutive life sentences for rape and burglary. That young man is now 64, and he says he never had a chance at a fair trial in what was back then a mostly segregated community. Ronnie was convicted by an all-white jury in North Carolina with no evidence linking him to the crime, an alibi, and only shaky witness ID from the survivor, 54-year-old Sarah Bost. After decades in prison, the case against Ronnie has steadily unraveled. Now lawyers for Ronnie Long, who accuse investigators of lying about evidence, are trying to write what they say is a wrongful conviction. His lawyers also say the prosecution withheld crucial DNA evidence belonging to the real attacker. So why was Ronnie in prison for more than half of his life? And who is the real attacker of Miss Bost? Just a warning, this particular episode contains strong language that may be offensive to some listeners. Hey, Ronnie. How are you doing? 
Still struggling, but I'm okay. What's What's the yeah. struggle today? Uh, trying to stay alive. The damn uh, coronavirus, and you know, say it'll hit it in. So that's my struggle. That's my struggle. That's what I'm struggling with right now. Today, Ronnie Long is 64. He spent more than half of his life in prison for a crime he says he did not commit. When I first spoke to Ronnie, he was a bit hard to understand. He has a deep Southern accent. But even if I couldn't fully understand what he was saying all the time, his sentiments always came through. Right away, we talked about coronavirus and how scared he is of catching it at his age. Yeah, that's Wait, a scary... No, have you had anything this scary happen since you've been in prison? It was a little incident. Do, do uh, a fight count? <laughs> it was almost a, a racial war. When was that? This uh, is back in the 70s, though. Talking to Ronnie has been different than a lot of the other folks I've spoken to. Ronnie is older and has done more time. He's also the first person I've interviewed for this series who was convicted in the 70s. The where and when of this case plays huge roles in how it unfolded. It matters that Ronnie was a black man accused of raping a white woman. It matters that it happened in North Carolina, in a state that 20 years earlier had fought hard against desegregation, and that in 1976, it was still segregated. And this is what attracted me to Ronnie's story. The absurdity of what you're about to hear is pretty clear it was based on race and the disposability of black bodies during this time. Ain't no way you can tell me, white judge, white victim, white DA, 12 white jurors, one black defendant, young black man in the 70s, and he got a fair trial. It wasn't about the truth. It wasn't about what's right or wrong. It was black and white. That's what it was. These people are not trying to find out the truth. They don't want to know the truth. They concerned. The only thing they concerned is white woman said she got assaulted by a black man. We got a black man right here. Lock him up. I'm going to keep scratching and clawing until the truth is brought to the surface. They know what they did to me. They know they set me up. They know... Ronnie Wallace Long was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, September 15, 1955. He's the sixth child of seven kids. Charlotte is the largest city in North Carolina, but Ronnie wound up being raised in Concord, just a half hour north. Concord is a much smaller city, and Ronnie grew up in the projects until he was about eight. His father had his own concrete company, and they were able to move out and buy a house and afford little luxuries. We were the first family, you know what I'm saying, to have a go-kart, mini-bike. Uh, uh, my sister's dad, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, these things right now today don't mean nothing, but I mean, back then, I mean, you, uh, my sister had a three-way bicycle. I ain't never seen a three-way bicycle. But even though they owned a home and were virtually middle-class, they still lived segregated in the black section of town and went to an all-black school. This section of town, the black section, was given a derogatory name, Black Bottom. And the reason they called it Black Bottom is because there's a lot of blacks down there in the bottom. It's called 
Again, if you're like me and not used to Southern accents mixed with tricky prison phone tape, he said that the reason it was called Black Bottom was twofold. There were a lot of black people, and the city would never turn on the streetlights. I mean, you pass Melrose Drive, but Melrose Drive on down, you in total darkness. You know what I mean? And so this is where Ronnie grew up. Cabarrus County, where Ronnie's jurors would eventually be selected from, was 84% white and 16% black. Through middle school, Ronnie went to an all-black school, and he says he didn't like school then. He wasn't a bad kid, but he just wanted to go home and watch TV. I want, I want to go back home and watch the pound. I want to watch the, the funny. I want to watch the pink pound. I used to love to watch the pink pound when I was home. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't like to go to school because, hey, uh, I'm missing the pink pound when I'm up in this classroom. And they ain't talking about nothing. No, I ABC, Jack and Jill. You know what I mean? I'll talk about that later. I'm going to go back down. So I used, to, I used to sneak out of class. If you missed that, he said he wanted to watch Pink Panther instead of learning his ABCs and Jack and Jill. So he was known to sneak out of class now and then. Around this time, the schools integrated. Again, integration was years earlier, but it finally reached Concord then. And the once uncrossable Union Street where the affluent white people lived, Ronnie and his classmates now had to go over to get to school. We had to walk from... uh from the bottom all the way to Concord Junior High School. And when we walked, we had to go straight, we had to go through the white section, white communities. And believe it or not, you had white older men and women, they're standing on their porch watching us go down to me. This is back in 68, 69. Yeah. Yeah, they still calling you nigga. Get out of where all these niggas going. I mean, yeah, they still. I mean, this, 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 this is the mentality of the people there in Concord. I mean, you. What was that? What was that like, Ronnie, to start suddenly going to school with white kids? Also, I mean, we used to walk down the hallway. Now this is real. This is real. We used to walk down the hallway when they first integrated school. We walked down the hallway. You had white students. They would rub their body all the way up against the wall, on the opposite wall. Like, they don't want to touch you. They don't want to be nowhere around you. You understand what I'm saying? They rubbing their body all the way up the wall, going on the other side. But despite the racism, Ronnie became a popular triathlete, playing football, basketball, and baseball, his favorite. He had plans to go pro. After Ronnie finished high school, by 1976, when he was 20, he was working as a stonemason, making fireplaces and patios for his father's company. He had a girlfriend and a kid and the handsome, and I mean like super attractive, bright blue-eyed athlete seemed to have it made and never had any major trouble with the law. That is, until Sarah Bost, a wealthy widow from the rich white part of town entered a courtroom on May 10th, 1976, looking for the man she says raped her in one of the most bizarre witness IDs I've ever heard of. 
if you would like to introduce yourself and just tell listeners who you are and uh, how you're involved in this case. Well, my name's Aaron, and I'm with Generation Y Podcast. We've been around for about eight years at this point. If you don't know the Generation Y Podcast, welcome to True Crime 101. How you doing tonight, Aaron? I'm doing good, Justin. How are you? I'm doing great. Aaron is the co-host with Justin, and they are super popular. And our passion is talking about true crime cases, especially ones where there are questions, whether it's with the court system or with who did it or why they did it. In 2017, Aaron and Justin covered Ronnie's case in an episode. And the reason I've always liked the Generation Y podcast is because they go into each case with an open mind. They review the evidence and come to a reasonable conclusion based on it. So Aaron helped walk me through the facts of the case to try and understand how Ronnie Long, a 20-year-old kid who seemed to have everything going for him and claims he's innocent, got put away for life. Give, you know, the basic summary of what what happened to Ronnie in the case. Well, we're talking about North Carolina. And at the time, there was a woman living on a street. It was 158 South Union Street. She was widowed. Her husband had owned the biggest company in the town. This woman was Sarah Bost. She was 54. And the company was Cannon Mills. It was a textile company. And her husband was actually an executive, but that doesn't really matter. Either way, he was a big shot. At the company's peak, Cannon Mills produced 300,000 towels a day, becoming the world's largest producer of textile products. And so she was someone well-respected because, you know, they had hired so many people, provided so much income and jobs for people. Um, you could imagine their standing in and so she was at home on April 25th, 1976, and she had just finished making herself a hamburger. And so she had put it on a plate and was walking into her den. And this is about somewhere between 930 and 10 at night. Someone knocked the plate from her hand from behind. And so she was suddenly being attacked by a man. At first, it started as a robbery. The man asked for money, but she didn't have any on her. So then he starts to force her up the stairs, but she resisted and a tussle ensued. And he had a knife. So she said that she was screaming. She was clawing at him. She fought him the entire time. When the man left, she had no clothing on. She had been raped, but she ran immediately next door to a neighbor's house. And she said, I was just raped by a black man. I need help. Miss Boss was taken to the hospital, covered in bruises and abrasions, and her fingernails were bent backwards from fighting and scratching. A rape kit was performed where they found large amounts of semen. Evidence was also collected from the scene, including matches the perpetrator allegedly used to break into the house, a shoe print, and 43 fingerprints from the location of the attack on the stairs. She then gave a description of her attacker, who she says she was able to see because the TV lit his face. She described a light-skinned black male, about 5'9 to 5'10, slender build and slim hips. Her description did not include those unique blue eyes or any mention of the perpetrator having any kind of facial hair, at least her first descriptions. 
The attacker did not have an accent, was, quote, well-spoken, and was wearing a waist-length leather jacket, blue jeans, and a dark beanie, or what she called a toboggan, pulled low on his head. A toboggan cap. Um, this is something that got me in a lot of trouble with listeners because they're like, a toboggan is a sled, but... You know, you can look it up on the internet if you don't believe me, but this is part of the court record, and I even did additional research on toboggans. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I just toboggans did a quick Google. Yeah. Caps. <laughs> she was also shown a photo lineup. She did not identify anyone in the pictures, and Ronnie Long was not in the lineup. And so at this point, two things should stick out to you. If you're like me, you've searched what Ronnie looks like. He's clearly not a light-skinned black man, and Ronnie says he always always had facial hair. Also, Ms. Bost said her attacker didn't have an accent. And from hearing Ronnie, I mean, he clearly has an accent. So how did he get attached to the case? Well, in Washington, D.C., there was another rape and robbery. His social security card was found by the victim. The year before, Ronnie was living in D.C. with his uncle. Now, this might sound bad for Ronnie, but he says he lost his wallet. When his card showed up at a survivor's house after she was raped, naturally, Ronnie was considered a suspect. But the woman says she got a good look at her attacker and did not ID Ronnie in a photo lineup, and the case against him was dismissed. Ronnie's current lawyer tried to get the records of this incident, but he says the police in D.C. told him the records of the case were destroyed. Now, the only time records would be destroyed is if a case is closed, meaning it's solved and someone else was prosecuted. So it's likely that's what happened. But either way, this is how Ronnie got on their radar. And so... Of course, they wanted to talk with Ronnie Long. They really wanted to find out if he would be identified by Sarah Bost. So the police in the North Carolina case, David Taylor, Marshall Lee, George Volger, and Van Eisenhower, do a very unconventional thing. They knew Ronnie was going to be in court for a minor trespassing charge a few weeks later on May 10th. So they decided to bring Miss Bost to court that day. We want you to look around and see if your attacker is there. We're not saying he will be, but he might be. Sarah was very nervous. She wasn't sure she could do this, but... They did offer, if you like, we can give, we can help you with the disguise. So Miss Bost wore a red wig and glasses to court and sat there, waiting to see if her attacker showed up. And, you know, many people would say, if the officers are going to bother escorting you to a court to look for a person, they're probably there, right? Miss Bost sat in the courtroom for an hour and a half before she identified her attacker. It wasn't until his name was called that she pointed him out. That person she pointed out was Ronnie Long. There were only 12 black people in court that day, including Ronnie and his dad. And Ronnie, out of all of them, happened to be of similar age, look similar, and be dressed the way Ms. Boss described her attacker, specifically the leather jacket he was wearing. Although, to be honest, the movie Shaft had a big impact on young black men. Shaft's his name. Shaft's his game. <laughs> so... It wasn't like Ronnie was the only one wearing a leather jacket. I was going to say this, this leather jacket, I can just picture it exactly from Shaft. This is, this is the style. Yeah. Even Ronnie told me about the jacket and how the style was from Shaft. The point is, it's not like the jacket is unique. 
But for Ronnie Long, it sealed his fate. You know, it's very powerful because the victim wants justice, deserves justice, but then is shown someone who sort of looks like her attacker. And the police are the ones that led her to this courtroom. She didn't know about this. What is she supposed to do? Mm-hmm. In fact, I would say she did what she was supposed to do because she needs justice. That night, after Ronnie left court with his charges dismissed, Sergeant David Taylor and Officer Marshall Lee came to his house. When they showed up, they asked him to come down to the station to straighten out the trespassing warrant. They said they had some paperwork for him to finish signing. Ronnie's father asked if he needed a lawyer, and Officer David Taylor said no. Once at the station, he was questioned about the rape of Miss Bost, which Ronnie said he had nothing to do with. Officer George Volger then asked to search his car, which officers say Ronnie agreed to, but Ronnie tells a different story. In court testimony, Ronnie says officers did not request permission to search his car. He says Officer Taylor took his keys off the table and went downstairs without giving a reason. And then he proceeded to search Ronnie's car. In the car is where they found a toboggan cap matching the description Miss Bost gave. Ronnie says it wasn't his. The car was his mother's, the family car. You know, it was shared by everyone, including his brothers and father. But after the hat was found, Ronnie was taken into custody for burglary and the rape of Miss Bost. Photos were taken of his body. Hair and pubic samples were also collected. What Ronnie thought was going to be 10 to 15 minutes at the station wound up being the majority of his life in prison. But Ronnie insisted he had an alibi. You know, that night he was on the phone with his girlfriend and his two-year-old son. His mother even spoke with them. She got on another phone in the house. He was home the night of the incident, up until about 10.30, and then went to a party with some friends who testified to his whereabouts. Witnesses who were at the party said they did not see any scratches or injuries on Ronnie or his jacket, which there would be, considering the fight Miss Bost put up. Remember, her nails were bent backwards from the struggle. Another thing about the car. The car that Ronnie was using that night, which he left in again about 1030, that wasn't even at his house for a long while because his dad brought the vehicle home after 10 o'clock. This attack happened between 9.30 and 10. So the car that he was supposedly using that night, that wasn't even available to him. This was the car that evidence was collected from. Yes, the toboggan, but there was more. A hair was found in the toboggan and a matchbook with missing matches, both of which they would be able to compare to crime scene evidence, including hair found at the scene from the suspect and the used matches found at the scene. And you'd think if all that evidence were valid, it would have been presented to the jury, but none of it was. At trial, only one shoe print and Miss Bost's strange witness ID were entered as evidence. They only used the eyewitness identification by Sarah Bost of Ronnie Long, and they used the shoe prints and the shoes 
evidence, which wasn't a match, but they used it because they thought that the jury would look and see similarities. All of the other evidence collected, including the fingerprints, hair samples, and semen, never made it to trial and were never even mentioned at trial. Ronnie was convicted based on witness ID alone. Eyewitness identification is going to come up a lot in this series. According to the Innocence Project, more than 70% of the nearly 400 wrongful convictions that have been overturned by DNA evidence involved mistaken eyewitness IDs. It's rare that anyone's lying, but human brains just don't record things we see as accurately as we want to believe. And that's under the best of circumstances. A woman who's just been raped? Well, you can imagine. But this case is even trickier than some of the others we'll talk about because it's not just the traumatized survivor's identification. It's cross-racial witness ID, which is when the witness and a defendant are of different racial backgrounds. Here, Ronnie is black and Ms. Bost is white. Studies show it's harder to identify someone of a different racial background. According to the Innocence Project, of the 216 wrongful convictions overturned by DNA testing, cross-racial witness identification was used as evidence to convict an innocent defendant in 66 cases. A study done by the National Registry of Exonerations says about 70% of white sexual assault survivors were attacked by white men, and only about 13% by black men. The study shows that black defendants convicted of raping white women are about eight times more likely to be innocent than white men convicted of raping women of their own race. On October 1st, 1976, after only four hours of deliberation, 20-year-old Ronnie Long was given two consecutive life sentences of 80 years apiece for first-degree rape and burglary by an all-white jury hand-selected by the sheriff where four jurors worked for Cannon Mills, the company Miss Boss's husband worked for. After his conviction, massive protests broke out in Concord to free Ronnie. Newspapers report a couple hundred people assembled in front of the courthouse demanding Ronnie's release, but to no avail. Miss Bost went to her grave believing Ronnie was her attacker. She died a few years ago. When we first talked, Ronnie had served 44 years of his first 80-year sentence. It's unbelievable. An all-white jury, no evidence other than eyewitness identification, which I understand could be very powerful in 1976, but we've learned a lot about that since. Um, why give him 80 years? It just seems wrong. We're talking about a man's life here. 80 years for a 20-year-old? That's a death sentence. I talked with Ronnie about how most 64-year-olds are hanging with grandkids, enjoying retirement. And instead, he's fighting for his life inside prison, not only against COVID and to try and get out, but against other prisoners. I don't want to hurt nobody, and I don't want nobody to hurt me. It's just in fact, you know what I'm when I'm confronted with it, I got to deal with it. Ronnie entered prison at 20 years old. He had no criminal record, but was put in one of the worst prisons in the state. Central Prison, and he says he saw a man stabbed to death just days after he entered. 
if you could imagine, this is traumatizing. And so Ronnie learned quickly. He had to be tough, often meaning violent, to survive on the inside. You talking about, you know what I'm saying, uh, protecting yourself. In an environment, you know what I'm saying, where uh, hostility is a way of life. It things can get real, real ugly, real, real quick. If you show a sign of weakness, then you will be victimized. And... That sounds ominous because it is. Ronnie by no means has been what a warden would consider a model prisoner. He's had dozens of infractions while being behind bars, including assault with a weapon. Ronnie's been locked up so long, he's basically tallied one infraction per year of incarceration. And no doubt some people will see that as proof that Ronnie was violent all along. But really... I don't know how I behave in prison if I was 20 years old, got thrown in there and felt I wasn't supposed to be there living day in and day out in this violent environment. Whereas Ronnie explained, you have to fight to survive. And not only that, there are the emotional struggles of spending more than half of his life in prison. Ronnie's lost three family members while he was inside. Three. My two sisters and my dad. My mom, 89. I don't know how much longer she's going to be around. You're picking all of this from me. My son was three years old. My son right now is almost 46. 47. You're picking all of this out of my life. Yeah. I'm not, I don't have no real animosity. I'm, a, I'm disappointed. And upset because you got a system that unfailed me. You got a system that you say is righteous. But how can it be righteous if you don't violate my constitutional rights? Thirty years after his conviction, Ronnie's lawyers learned that investigators did test the more than a dozen pieces of evidence collected from his car and the crime scene. 13 pieces of evidence, which included 43 fingerprints and some other items like matchbook, burnt matches, hairs, fibers. The biological evidence, the semen that was collected from her, This is all evidence that you would think would have made it into court one way or the other, but it wasn't. In fact, the lead detective wasn't even including it in its reports because the SBI lab that tested all of it was like, nope, no match, nope, no match, nope, no match. All of the testing shows that the evidence did not match Ronnie. Hair and fingerprints found at the scene did not match Ronnie or Miss Bost, clearly pointing to someone else. Ronnie's lawyer at the time didn't know about the rape kit, the physical evidence that was collected, and the testing done on it, which could have been exculpatory for Ronnie. And that's because the police hid it from the defense and prosecutors. The evidence was discovered in 2005 with a master case file. Detective Van Eisenhower had testified in 1976 that he personally delivered the evidence to be tested, and nothing else was tested other than the shoe print. The case file shows that was a lie. Ronnie has filed multiple appeals. 
including one for a Brady violation. And quick explainer, when someone's accused of a crime, they are legally entitled to see all the relative evidence gathered, either for them or against them. That is a super crucial part of our system. A Brady violation is when the prosecution does not turn over favorable evidence to the defense. Ronnie, time and again, year after year, was continually denied. Today, the current Attorney General of North Carolina is Josh Stein, who has been in the position since 2017 and has constantly fought to uphold Ronnie's conviction. He's been trying to tout his own um, record as far as being progressive and righting wrongs. And he's been asked directly about this case and he just keeps going, well, the courts decided. Mm. I have a feeling that this case is so entrenched in that state that people don't want it changed because they feel like they have to do this solid for the boss. I'm not sure what else it is. It's like they can't take a look at their own um, errors and it, they are errors. I've seen their court's decisions and they're wrong. They're flat out wrong. It really feels like most in the state are just afraid to overturn this because this is somehow really important to their history, to their identity. It's about pride. And so there's so many people have been silent on this case when they should have said something because maybe they favor law enforcement so much, or maybe some people just have a bias against, uh, I'll say it, black men. So if Ronnie Long didn't attack Miss Bost, who did? In 2015, more evidence was discovered by his legal team, including a list of six other suspects. Ronnie and his lawyers from Duke Law Innocence Project began pushing in 2015 to get what remains of any evidence DNA tested. The rape kit and semen have disappeared, but the fingerprints can be entered into databases like APHIS the automated fingerprinting identification system, as well as tested for touch DNA. We've come a long way since 1976. We now have DNA testing as of the late 80s, and they never wanted that sample tested. And that that really makes you wonder, this wasn't about proving Ronnie Long, it was about convicting Ronnie Long. It was, I think, a situation where he fit everything well enough that they just used him as a fall person. But if they actually cared about the victim, when they had DNA testing available, they should have went ahead and tested it because there were appeals going on. Ronnie was fighting this case all along. All they had to do was go and test that evidence. And then either they'd prove their case right or prove it wrong. And so, you know, you guys, obviously, I've listened to your podcast for years. Um, you know, you guys are both very level-headed. You look at all the evidence. I feel, I feel like you would be comfortable saying this is an innocent man. Um, I heavily lean towards innocent man. I wasn't there every step of the way, but I can tell you that based on the prosecution's actions, as well as the detective's actions in this case, as well as the sheriff's, I feel comfortable saying they screwed this man and that is wrong. And so I don't care how much they believe he's the perpetrator. Ronnie Long 
at the very least deserves a new trial, if not uh, a full just release where he's his record is clean. The original district attorney who prosecuted Ronnie for the rape actually agrees with this. Ron Bowers was an assistant DA who worked alongside DA Bob Roberts. Bowers testified for Ronnie at the 2008 hearing. He said the police department never told him that evidence had been submitted for testing and that if he had known about it, he would have given Ronnie's lawyers the reports. He said Ronnie was not given a fair trial and that the police department hid critical evidence that could prove Ronnie's innocence. Attorney General Josh Stein has fought to uphold Ronnie's conviction. If Ronnie's telling the truth, that means for 44 years, the real attacker of Miss Bost has been free to harm others. It's so obvious he's innocent, yet they still, and you know, and there's so much support for him that they still want to keep him in prison, all because what they want to protect a lie from 76 that they initially had nothing to do with. This is Ashley. She's Ronnie's longtime advocate, and she came across his case seven years ago as a university student whose major was criminal justice and criminology. You know, they can wash their hands of this, you know, distance themselves from it, you know, and, and be on the right side of this very easily and just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you know, because it's not a hard, like, yo, oh, yeah, they were doing illegal things back then. Like, they could do that, but instead they'd rather protect it. After getting to know Ronnie over the years, Ashley fell in love and asked Ronnie to marry her. And they got married in 2014. Over the years, Ashley has pointed out the hypocrisy of so-called, quote, progressives, like Attorney General Stein and Governor Roy Cooper, fighting to uphold the conviction. I've never understood why everyone else's life matters more than Ronnie's and his family's, because what about his reputation and his family's reputation? Because he went away for rape. Even today, Ashley pointed out that both men have made public statements that Black Lives Matter. And I think that they're only saying that Black Lives Matter because it's a political move. Attorney General Josh Stein and Governor Roy Cooper are both up for re-election this fall. I contacted their offices about Ronnie's case and their statements on Black Lives Matter. And I've not heard back. They, they don't care anything about Black Lives. They really don't. Like Ronnie's case is a perfect example. And Roy Cooper, the, the governor, was the attorney general before he was the governor. So he used to be filing the papers, you know keep Ronnie in prison prior to this. They're really, they're, all they're saying is Black Lives Matter be in a political move to get Black people to vote for them. That's, that's the only reason. They could care less about Black Lives Matter. Josh Stein um, does not support the Racial Justice Act, meaning he doesn't think that there's a racial bias in North Carolina court system. He doesn't think there's anything wrong with a Black defendant and an all-white jury. Ashley has been calling on the public to help get Ronnie justice. We've been asking everyone to continue with the daily bombarding of contacting Cooper and Stein and the clemency office by all methods possible, email, phone calls, social media, um, physical letters, um, you know, all in support of Ronnie. Just keep up the public outrage and let them know, um, you know, we are not going away and this issue is not going away. Most recently, 38 interfaith leaders sent a letter with the NAACP to Governor Cooper's office supporting Ronnie. 16 members of the North Carolina General Assembly who support Ronnie's freedom also sent Governor Cooper a letter. Thank you. I am innocent. I am. I want people to see every month, all my documents. I want to actually put them online. I want people to read this for themselves. 
Now, usually at the end of each episode, I'll put a call out for how you can help get justice. Today, I'm glad to say I don't need to do that. This episode is ending differently. In May, the Fourth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals heard arguments from lawyers on both sides of this case. Courts are notoriously slow to make decisions, and with COVID around, no one was holding their breath for a ruling. This episode was written, recorded, and ready to go when... Nine to six saying that Ronnie's rights have been violated. The second highest court in, in the United States of America agreed. Ronnie won. The court ruled in his favor for a new trial. And the state and attorney general, Josh Stein, are no longer contesting his conviction. If you heard the evidence I presented, you probably know why. Ronnie was released exactly two weeks ago on August 27th, and he's home with his wife, Ashley. I called Ronnie on video chat and caught him and Ashley while they were shopping, looking for new clothes for Ronnie. Yay! Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> Hi, Ronnie. Where are you doing? Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're roses. I'm trying to find a couple pairs of slacks. Tell, tell her how you're trying to find pleated pants that are like out of style, girl. Yeah. So how, Ronnie? Style. How is it being out? How are you adjusting? More or less, uh, one day at a time. Is it overwhelming? Oh man, what you talking about? <laughs> I'm standing in a department store. Yeah. Yeah. Forty years. I'm standing in a department store. <laughs> Is like technology weird for you? <laughs> yeah, it is. I, that's what I've been trying to show me how to cut the TV on. You gotta look. <laughs> <laughs> I, I ain't never been. Uh, you gotta be looking at the phone. I ain't, oh, I gotta look at the phone. Hey, look. <laughs> and this is why I'm doing this show. There are more cases like Ronnie's out there, a lot more. Cases in which the evidence just doesn't add up, but police and prosecutors don't want to even consider that maybe they've gotten it wrong and often fight for it for decades like they did with Ronnie. My hope is that by sharing these stories, we might help get more outcomes like you heard today. Ronnie's mom died just a month before he got out of prison. If you want to learn more about Ronnie, go to freeronnielongnow.org for all information on his case. Ronnie is adjusting to being home, and on his website, you can find ways to donate to help him integrate back into the world. He's had 44 years stolen, and Ashley says donations will help ensure that he doesn't have to work and can live the rest of his days comfortably. That's freeronnielongnow.org. Hey fam, thanks so much for checking out episode one of Unjust and Unsolved. Episode two is available right now. It tells the story of Jermaine Smothers, a gang member who was wrongfully convicted of killing a member of a rival gang and the cop who's been fighting to get his conviction overturned. You can find Unjust and Unsolved wherever you listen. So I hope you'll go and find the show and subscribe.